application out of this is to pray. So let me pray and ask God to, uh, to meet us as we jump into his word. Jesus, we thank you for the ways that you provide, both when we ask you for help and we ask you in dependence and ask you in faith, and also, Lord, when we don't. Lord, you answer prayers that we haven't even thought to utter, never mind spoken out loud. And so, Lord, this morning I pray that you would help us to see the gift that is you, that your light, that you as the light we long for as people who dwell in deep darkness, Lord, I pray that it would be, that it would be the gift that it is. Lord, we thank you for these things. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Anytime I see light in Scripture, the word light, the description of light, I, I'm always, uh, it always brings to mind one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis, which is, he says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but also because by it I see everything else. So this gift of light, yes, it is the gift itself, but I want to talk a little bit this morning about how by it we see everything else. And so it reveals and answers three questions that we're going to talk about this morning. The first is this. Let's, let's stop and, and pause and just ask the question, who is this gift of light for? Right? It said those in deep darkness. That, that word, that phrase, deep darkness, actually means, uh, translated literally, is death shadow. So those who are living in the shadow of death, like death is this kind of haunting specter that is over everything. And much like we talked about last, last week, until Jesus comes to make everything new, everything new will eventually dissolve and fade and distort because we live in a broken and fallen world. But we can't also not gloss over verse one. Um, it's really easy to read this first verse as kind of like a a prolonged context and historical introduction. But what it says here is that in, in naming these two regions, Nephtali and Zebulun, which are also um, one of two of the tw 12 tribes of Israel, they are the northernmost regions of Israel. And they're the first to fall uh, when the Assyrian Empire came rolling through and just pancaking everything in its wake. It was also because they're the first to depend on man's power instead of God's power. When it says later on in that verse that uh, the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Galilee of the nations, the word nations is also uh, Gentiles in the New Testament. And so what this, is, what this is actually describing is a region that is not part of Israel or not populated by Jews. Because, but, but that's not actually the case in Isaiah's time. He's actually looking forward to a time when Jews didn't live there because they haven't yet. He's actually predicting and anticipating a time when Jesus was born that this region had been transformed demographically. This isn't just interesting data. This would have made everything that follows dramatically unexpected and surprising to Isaiah's original audience. Because the last thing you would think that God is going to deliver and start with and name people who were faithless. <laughs> Not the people who held out for as long as they can or maybe were innocent. It was the people who were the first to compromise dependence on God. 
This is encouraging to us because it means that the more you may worry or the more you may doubt that God would extend grace to you, that actually, according to God's economy, makes it more likely. (laughs) That's not, that's actually an indicator of God's promise to love, to rescue, and to deliver you, not the strength of your faith because it doesn't depend on you. It depends on God. In verse 2, I, I, anytime you see in the Old Testament, like, people who walk in or walked something, that language of walked, that is, that is signaling an active participation in. And so when it says, those who walked in deep darkness or those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, he's talking about those who, you know, the darkness was visited upon them and also those people who the darkness they caused. Victim and perpetrator oppressor and oppressed. The light covers all because the darkness covered all. And anywhere there is darkness, this light is for those who dwell or walk in that darkness. Now, especially when you start using language like, you know, God loves or forgives or extends grace to both the victim and the perpetrator, the oppressed and the oppressor, um, you got to ask the question like, okay, how... Does that sound like good news or bad news? Right? Because I think we as a culture, uh, once upon a time, we used to struggle with the idea that God would be a just God, that he would execute his justice or judgment on creation. But sometime in the last few years, I don't know if you've noticed this, but that kind of flipped. Now I think the biggest kind of cognitive dissonance that we have to, to overcome is the idea that God might forgive people who deserve his judgment. And I just encourage you that, like, depending on how you heard what I just said, I'd ask you, is, is grace big enough to cover maybe the people that you think are pretty deserving of God's judgment, who are caused the darkness that you feel like you have dwelt in? Because his grace is not limited. His light, it's not like, you, you can't stop light. It just keeps going on forever. But there's a purpose for this, Right? There's a purpose for this grace and mercy. In verse 3, I want to read again. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. This amplifies grace. And amplified grace leads to a multiplied joy by looking at and, and seeing how that grace covers even those who cause darkness. Um. It's been a while since I've, I've mentioned this, but I used to be in the Army National Guard, and for, the, for nine of the 11 years I was in the Army National Guard, I was a, a chaplain. And my role as a chaplain is, is one of many, is to be a kind of mental health and spiritual first responder for, for soldiers who are in crisis. And over the years, I, I've literally done pastoral care and counseling for hundreds of soldiers. And one of the most common denominators I've ever encountered, which is not limited to the Army, is this idea when you drill down to what's going on internally with people is that they realize, and you can help pull this out, that we're all kind of trying to answer this question, am I enough? And I remember talking to this one soldier who actually, he, had, he verbalized it really quickly. <laughs> like, it didn't take a whole lot of like, you know, here's some breadcrumbs, is this what you are saying, you know? And he's like, no, no, it's, am I enough? And everybody around me keeps telling me that I'm, I am enough, but I just don't feel like it's helping. I'm like, 
man, I've got some really, really good news for you. And I told him, I said, you're not. (laughs) You're really not enough, man. Like, I'm not enough. You're not enough. Are you kidding me? Do you see what we have to deal with on a day-to-day basis? And I used some examples of very specific to him. I'm like, no, you're not enough. Thank God. And I had a great, you know, rapport with him, and so he didn't uh, take that personally at all. Um, but he could tell from my tone that, that I actually really cared about him and that me saying he wasn't enough wasn't at all a, a conflict with, with genuine concern and compassion. And so he started being curious. He's like, well, so what do you, why are you asking about this? Or, or why, why do you say that that's good news? I said, because if you're enough, you don't actually need love. I said, would you, which is a bigger love? Someone who, a love that is given to you because you are enough or a love that is given to you despite not being enough? Which one's bigger? He said, the second one. I said, you're right. I said, which one do you think is more believable? He said, that's why I don't believe when people tell me I'm enough. I said, absolutely. That's the good news. I saw recently, I, I, I was reminded of this, this conversation with him because I saw a quote recently that says, we don't need saving from being evil, but from false belief that you're not enough. And I have two observations about that because, and, and, and I want to say that this is, this is something that is like in the background or the white noise for all of us. You actually are evil, and that's good news. Because to believe that we do not share in the complicity of the brokenness of this entire world is, is, is harder to believe for me, based on my own personal experience, than believing that the earth is flat. Right? It requires a greater uh, suspension of disbelief in order to believe that, like, yeah, I'm enough, than it does to believe that, like, the horizon isn't curved. Okay? But also, can you imagine the astounding degree of spiritual privilege it requires to say what we all struggle to like, fight the temptation of believing that I am enough. Like It requires you to have an experience of, of, of the world and reality that has not been that hard, <laughs> where you actually have more data points to say you are enough, and that's, that's just not the case. This leads to the second question I want to talk about, because, <laughs> well, sorry, before I, I say that, I, I just want to m- mention one thing. I want to put my, myself on the chopping block with this as well, and I want to tell you that the way this can work out can be so insidious and so pervasive. I, as a pastor, can prepare a sermon because I need to know that I'm enough, or I can prepare a sermon because Jesus already is. And those are two very different ways of doing the same thing. And that's scary, honestly, as a pastor. It means there's nothing that I do in life that is not, that, that can avoid this. And that exposes something, which is the second question. What does this gift of light expose? And in a word, it's pride. Let me, let me explain it this way. When we talk about the gift of life, I want you to imagine the kind of gift that humbles you, right? Some gifts humble you. Imagine that this Christmas, you didn't ask for any of these, by the way. Imagine that this Christmas, someone gave you a gift certificate for a makeover. 
You didn't ask for it. <laughs> Wonder what that conversation would be like. Right? What if somebody gave you a book on dieting? Um, or, I don't know, a king-sized box of breath mints. Right? I don't know about you, but I'd rather get a piece of coal in my stocking than a stick of deodorant. Okay? Um, when, I, when talking about this with Hannah, Hannah reminded me that early on in our marriage, I got her some workout DVDs. And I, re I reminded her that, I, that she actually asked for those. I'm almost certain that that's true. <laughs> right? When you're given a gift, you're seen. But the nature of that being seen can be really humbling in a good way or really problematic way. But you're always exposed. Right? And when you are exposed, um, you, you see, and everybody else sees, whoever's giving you the gift, the good, the bad, and the ugly. In the same way, there is no humbling, there is no, humbling uh, there's no antidote to our pride without our pride being exposed. And in verses 4 through 5, Isaiah actually fills out, okay, what is the nature of this darkness? As the light comes, what is it revealing? What's actually happening? And it reveals the real bad and the very ugly consequences of a pride that has metastasized on an entire society. It says, for the yoke of his burden... And the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, in other words, these are here, you have broken on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. The, the, the symbols of, of yoke and rod represent oppression endured and inflicted, respected, respectively. But then it kind of escalates it's not just oppression. It's not this kind of chronic thing. It's this acute thing. And now boots and, uh, and, and, and garments, which are used to identify you from friend and foe, and boots that are used to travel for war, those are now unnecessary, and they're burned. The point being, these things are no longer even remotely needed. Not that they were needed in the first place, but they will never be used again. That they are broken, that they are burned, they are thrown away. Much like Isaiah says elsewhere, that swords are beaten into plowshares. Okay, you might be saying to yourself, I don't oppress people. I'm not like planning to con you know, conquer another people group or anything. But do you fight to get your way? How do you react to unmet expectations, even good ones? Do you consider the needs of others alongside or even as much as yourselves, never, your, your own, never mind more than? To illustrate this, I want to uh, hashtag sorry, not sorry, single-handedly ruin a Christmas song for you. Because I'm trying to, I'm harping on this because I want you to see just how baked in it is in the air we breathe and in the atmosphere around us, even during Christmas. And so I'm going to read some lyrics, and these lyrics, the only thing I have done to them is to remove the epically annoying refrain of parumpa pum pum. <laughs> Come, they told me, a newborn king to see. Our finest gifts we bring to lay before the king. So to honor him when we come. Little baby, I am a poor boy too. They have so much in common. 
I have no gift to bring that's fit to give our king. Shall I play for you? Mary nodded. The ox and the lamb kept time. Awkward, but cool. I played my drum for him. I played my best for him. Then he smiled at me, me and my drum. Come, they told me, a newborn king to see. Me and my drum, me and my drum, me and my drum, me and my drum. He should have named this song The Sentimental Little Narcissist. <laughs> I'm playing this up only a little bit, okay? I, and please don't tell my son Ransom because his favorite ornament on the tree is, is the, a little drummer boy uh, playing like an old school 50s version of this song. And I might be really tired of it. That's why it's making its way into a sermon illustration. But like God himself... The creator whom we gave the middle finger rebelled against and rejected his love because we wanted to be enough on our own in the Garden of, of Eden. That God, who has every right to say, thy will be done, that God was then born into human history, into the creation that we ruined, the mess that we made, that God is here in front of you. And all you can talk about is your stupid little drum? Sorry. <clears throat> My point in this is that when we are, ways that we try to cope with the brokenness of the world is to either make it about us or to diminish the severity of the problem. Like, I don't care if we're talking about Little Drummer Boy and Christmas or the sentimentality that can surround it. What if instead of those lyrics we sang as we will after communion, this is war like you ain't seen. This winter's long, it's cold and mean. With hangdog hearts, we stood condemned. But the tide turns now at Bethlehem. This is war and born tonight, the word as flesh, the Lord of light, the Son of God, the lowborn King, who demons fear, of whom angels sing. This is war on sin and death. The dark will take its final breath. It shakes the earth, confounds all plans, the mystery of God as man. That's what it should be about. Because we have not been saved from January through November, or increasingly every year, maybe January through September. We're not, we're not being saved from ordinariness and a lack of nostalgia. We're being saved from sin and death and deep darkness, the shadow of death that haunts us all. That's worth celebrating. And this gets to the last question, which is how does the gift of light, light bring this hope? How does it do that? In a word, it's through humility, right? Because even though I just read and we will soon sing a song titled, This is War, God fights this war very differently than we do. You see, in verses 4 through 5, we, which we just read they start with the same word, and so does verse 6. For the yoke of his burden, for every boot of the tramping warrior. And it, it keeps escalating. It goes from chronic distress to acute darkness and warfare. And then, as if, what is God going to do all about that? Do about all of that? What is he going to do? Well, it says in verse 6, finally, for to us a child is born. 
For to us, a child is born. Can you imagine how anticlimactic that would have been to Isaiah's audience upon first reading? I'm sorry, what? Oppression? Threat of exile coming from Babylon? No more war? And that's going to happen because a, a child is born? A son is born? Victory is won and oppression is lifted because, the king's, because of the king's birth. Because, of, because the God of the universe has passed through a birth canal. How many of you, by virtue of being born, fixed anything? Right? If you've got kids, you know that it does like scratch an itch and a longing in your heart to, to share love. That's like what it means to bear the image of a Trinitarian God. Like it's good, absolutely. And you also know that when they come, they come with some problems and a mess. And oh my God, are they needy. This king, this child had done nothing and changed everything by virtue of who he was. That's it. This child, Isaiah says, is a wonderful, is the wonderful counselor, which is, which is saying he's wise. He's supernaturally wise. He's qualified to be the king that we need in order to seize all war and stop all oppression. He is the mighty God which is a statement of his person and power being limitless in its holiness and strength. He is our eternal father. That is who he is in relationship to us. He's not a distant mighty God. He's an imminent mighty God who cares for his children. He's the prince of peace because his reign will be characterized by shalom. And that is the kingdom that he brings into this world as he brings the new creation. Glory itself was born in a manger with a VIP guest list of nomadic hermits, eccentric foreigners, and flea-infested livestock. We're idiots to worship this king. We're fools if we're seeing this through our own lens of power and merit and worth. He's redefining all of those things in a single moment. I love, C.S. Lewis says that Christmas is descent into greatness. Christmas is descent into greatness. Love descends. Glory descends. Nobility descends. Justice descends. Peace descends. Goodness descends. Truth descends. God himself descends. And if you know this truth deep in your heart, then nothing can shake you. To know that God condescended into abject poverty and obscurity followed by infamy that culminated in a humiliation of hanging on a cross between two thieves, then nothing can threaten you. And everything and anything can be redeemed by God. That is really good news. And it's made all the better when we stop and are still and silent, yes, to recognize that God is God, but also the darkness is as deep as we fear. And that that darkness is actually in our own hearts. And we need fear not looking there and actually asking if it's there because God's love and his light is on the line, is not on the line. In fact, it becomes more real, more potent in every way because we do. In a moment, I'm going to 
read whatever questions we have, but I, I want to answer the question of so what? Like, what are, the, what, are, what are some implications with this? And I've got three for you. The first is this. You can't just like Jesus. Like, if this is true, and everything that I've talked about this morning is the case, then there's no lukewarm response. It's either all or nothing. It's love and everything in your life and is, is reoriented around it, or you shouldn't, and I'm an idiot, and we're wasting our time. But too many of us, either it is because we lack an appreciation for the reality of the deep darkness that is that shadow of death that is haunting all of us. Maybe we, we haven't given enough attention to that because we're anesthetizing ourselves and distracting ourselves with, with Netflix and phones and whatever else is going on in the world. Or maybe that's actually the avenue through which you're like, I have debilitating anxiety now because I can't like, not think about all the darkness in the world. Or maybe you, be, you actually need to spend some time being, sit, being still before the gift of light to know that that light is infinitely and unfathomably more potent and more good than the darkness that otherwise obscures our sight. I'm not saying you can't just like Jesus because I want to beat you up. I want, it, I want, I want to say that because I want us to, to really ask and, and to expose those places in our hearts where we've reduced the king of kings to Ricky Bobby's sweet baby Jesus. And it may not be as much of a caricature as Talladega Nights, but maybe it's the uncritical assumptions we've made around the little, little drummer boy and making it about us. The second implication is this, that the government is upon his shoulders. God doesn't need you. That's really good news. He doesn't need you to win whatever fight the culture wars are provoking in, across all of society. The fact that the church participates them in it all is, a, is actually a statement of disbelief that Jesus is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords and that he is reigning even now. It's shameful. We should repent as a church. But also, he doesn't need you to liberate the oppressed. See, this cuts both ways, on the right and the left. You see how I'm doing this? It's, yeah. It was subtle until I named it, and it's like telling the, explaining the joke. It's no, not funny anymore. It says that his zeal will do this, not ours. Jesus is, was consumed with a zeal for his father's house, it says in Mark. When we are consumed with zeal, it ends up consuming somebody else. I keep thinking, I've thought so much over the last year and a half about the passage, I think it's in Luke, where um, the disciples and Jesus are coming back to Jerusalem just ahead of, you know, Passion, Holy Week and Passion Week and, and the crucifixion and everything. And on their way back, they're coming through Samaria, and they come to a Samaritan village, and the Samaritan village says, nope, you don't get, we're not going to extend hospitality to you. We're not going to welcome you. And I think it's uh, James and John, their response to this is, hey, Jesus, I got, we got this. You want us to call down fire on them and consume them? We can do that for you. If Jesus needs us to do something for him, he's not God. We are. That doesn't mean don't participate. That doesn't mean 
like, be dependent on him and go into those risky places to, to liberate the oppressed or to, I can't think of the, the other equivalent because it's harder and we should just be praying a lot more, I think. Participate freely because there's nothing on the line, but do not engage because it depends on you. Um, the podcast Bryce and I do, and I, we, we, we talk about how like, we're tr- we don't want to plug this like every time we get up here and talk, and I'm sorry if it's been a couple in a row now, but the, the one that was released this week in our interview with um, Kyle Strobel, you should all go listen to. And it's because we're asking really good questions. No. It's because Kyle is articulating a posture towards power that is so fresh and different and, frankly, a little bit scary, even as I'm listening to it. But we have got to recover as a church. And that'll be the last thing I say about that. Third implication is we rejoice in faith together. I want to break down (laughs) what I mean by each of those words. In verse 3, when it says that you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy, they rejoice before you as, joy, as with joy at the harvest, Isaiah is describing us right now. Because what he knows and what we forget easily is that we don't rejoice in our circumstances, we rejoice in faith. And that faith is something that we, we exercise not because of our ability to muster it up, but because Jesus is faithful and we can rejoice in that. I was going to read from Philippians 4, but if you, I'm running out of time, but go read Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7 and ask, where, ask God where you, can have, where you might have opportunity to rejoice in that way. Because it's not talking about suspending disbelief. It is a choosing to rejoice because it depends on Jesus and not you. That's good news. That's such good news. And lastly, the together part of this, rejoicing in faith together. I want to read a quote, and then I'll take questions. From St. Ignatius, he says, Make every effort to come together more frequently to give thanks. When he says give thanks, he's actually using the word and and referencing the Eucharist or communion. (laughs) Make every effort to come together more frequently to give thanks and glory to God. For when you meet together frequently... You don't just feel better. You don't just increase in your gratitude. You don't just have your anxiety kind of calm down or, or the edge of stress taken off. The powers of Satan are overthrown. <laughs> and his destructiveness is nullified by the unanimity of your faith. There is nothing better than peace by which all warfare among those in heaven and those on earth is abolished. There is maybe nothing more countercultural about Christmas than celebrating it together with people who disagree vehemently on things that are not ultimate or essential. If there is a refuge and a resilience that we need to build in response to the gospel as a church, it is that. And every time we do this, it is a resistance against ploys of, of the, the, the principalities and the darkness of, that we dwell in to divide us. That's a gift. Okay. First question, would you agree some nuance is appropriate when talking about people as evil? While that may be a theological reality, much of the pushback to that in our culture, which tells us that we are good and enough, stems from a recognition of the image of God or the potential for goodness in every person. Yes. Next question. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, so 
Western thought and philosophy is very dichotomous. In other words, we have categories. And they're not Venn diagrams, they're two different circles. To say that we are totally depraved, is the, is the theological term, does not mean you're all evil and all bad and there's no good. To say that you bear the image of God does not mean you have all dignity and there's no evil or there's nothing bad in you. It means that everything you do is tainted by the fall. That everything we do has a little bit of our selfishness and pride contaminating it. Yes, we can do good things. And also, Christianity is the only religion in the world that doesn't just tell, ask, challenge you to repent of the bad things you've done, but also of the good things you've done for bad reasons. I used my own, myself as an example that I can, and it's, it's, it, honestly, it's scary. I can prep a sermon because I need to know that I'm enough, either because you guys were wowed and amazed or because I just felt good about it, or I can prep a sermon because Jesus is enough. And that's actually saturated in my heart that I forget about myself long enough to proclaim his word up here. There is nothing in this world that that tension doesn't define. And so, yes, now, I will say, if I'm talking to somebody who, um, maybe, you, maybe the, you who asked this, maybe you're coming from a church that errs even slightly on the fundamentalist end of the spectrum, and you're used to being you know, told you're a worm, and that you need to ask for God's forgiveness, and Jesus died for your sins, and that's all good. And also, the command and response to that is to celebrate because you are loved. And I talked last week about double imputation, so I won't repeat myself here, but that's part of what's going on there. And I want to reassure you that, yes, man, neither this world nor you are the way you're supposed to be, but Jesus offers a recreation and a new creation in that. So, looks like that's all of our questions. Let me pray as we move to communion. Jesus, Lord, I really thank you that you uh, do not hinge your love and grace and mercy on the purity of our motives or intentions or even our ability to reckon with the darkness that we dwell in. Lord, you rescue both those who perpetuate and contribute to that darkness as well as those who have suffered under it. And so, Lord, I pray that in whatever form, flavor, or need we have this morning of that grace, I pray you meet us there and give it that as we approach your table, we would be reminded both of our hunger, that this table spiritually nourishes us in the midst of, but also at what cost it was given so freely to us. Lord, you are, you are good. Help us this Christmas season during Advent and beyond, to reckon with the darkness, but even more with the light that you give. Lord, we pray these things all in your name. Amen.